0: you yeah. My parents and my in-laws have this lurking concern that they have no idea how I make a living and a worry that I'm able to provide adequately for their grandchildren. And i find giving them my business cards accumulated over the years working on governance programs doesn't exactly assuage their concerns. Here's some of the titles of the organizations I've worked for over the years. The audio voiced by my eldest son, Charles.
1: Papua New Guinea Governance Facility? Papua New Guinea Australia Partnership, Justice Services and Stability for Development, Bourbonville Partnership, Papua New Guinea Decentralisation Partnership, Mekong Australia Partnership on Transnational Crime.
0: And my job titles are, if anything, even more bewildering, as you'll hear from my second son, Patrick.
2: Facilitated Drawdown of Powers and Functions. Autonomy and Governance Advisor. Decentralization Reform Implementation Advisor. Senior Design Advisor. Is that because you're old, Dad?
0: There were certainly days working in Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea when I struggled to articulate myself what I was doing. Working frequently in government offices where I'd be palisaded in by piles of files created by my predecessors I'd be trying to write policies, write plans, try to find public servants to attend workshops, which are all aimed at building up the administrative sinew of governments. And I'd spend an inordinate amount of time reporting what I was doing. By one estimate, about 60% of an individual's time working on a governance programme is spent writing reports. But often I was bored and at endless loose ends, There were days when nothing seemed to happen, when the governments I was meant to be working with did not seem to be present at all. Programs like the ones that I've worked on are ubiquitous features of Western statecraft. 27% of programs in Papua New Guinea focus on governance. I guess in influence terms, the question is, are these governance programs effective? Do governments in the region like them Grit their teeth and tolerate them? And why do we keep focusing on them? To find out more about these matters, I sought out a guru on the subject, Graham Teske. Graham was the principal governance specialist for the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, where his role was to advise DFAT on its governance and public sector programmes. Prior to moving to Canberra, Graham was a senior advisor at the World Bank, and prior to that, worked for the UK government's aid programme. Presently, he is principal global lead in the governance practice of APT Australia. And I began by asking Graham to explain what governance is. I think the main aspect of governance for this discussion would be governance programs that fall under the
2: category of public service management, making the bureaucracy function more effectively. And there are three things that governance programs in PSM and public sector management try to do. One, they play around with the structures of government. Who is doing what, whether it's a national function or a subnational function. So that manipulation of structure second thing they do, try to improve systems. Systems for managing people, money, information, assets, and policy making. So that's the second thing they do, manage, improve systems. And sometimes, in ambitious programs, they try to influence the incentive structure that influences, if not determines, individual and collective behavior. So that structure, systems, and incentives. Now, the conundrum is that the easiest thing to affect is structure, but that's the least effective. It often doesn't make much of a difference. The thing that will make the difference is changing the pattern of incentives, but that's the most difficult to have any influence over. So governance programmes is all usually a mix of those three things, structures, systems, and incentives. So that's the first part of my answer. second part of my answer why do governments do it why do they persist and again i think in principle that's a very easy question to answer and that is because effective governance and i'm using the term effective deliberately not good governance because good governance carries connotation of a particular form of government and usually for tone is it's liberal democracy So donors try to fund effective governance because they directly influence if not determine both prosperity and security. If you've got an effective state that listens to its citizens and responds to their needs and provides the ability for the private sector to grow and develop and generate jobs, then you are to some extent going a long way to those dream goals of both security and prosperity. the donors are never going to stop funding
0: governance programs. I mean, what influence on an everyday basis do these programs have, Graham? And I sort of, you know, declare my own position here, which is having worked on these programs, there were days where I was really, really busy. But there were other days where I sort of felt like a taxi driver idling at the airport waiting for a fare because nothing very much happened. And there was this tremendous pressure to try to make governance programs work, you know, as technocratic focus, developing manuals, developing policies, when what I think you're saying is that this is an inherently political process, and not something that you can reduce to tactical, easy columns on a spreadsheet.
2: Oh, that's absolutely right. Let's take Papua New Guinea. Since 1975, Australia has spent millions and millions of dollars on governance, and all the projects are monitored and reported as being successful. But if you look at the macro indicators, world governance indicators, and all the others, Freedom House, etc., Bertelsmann, Failed States Index, whatever, they don't register that much of an improvement. So you've got this macro macro paradox. Some projects are deemed successful, but the overall state of what I'm calling effective governance doesn't seem to improve very much. So... I've just come back from both the Solomon's and Papua New Guinea, and I talk to a lot of people working in governments who've been there for 5, 10, 15, and some cases 20 years. And interestingly enough, they gave me lots of examples of where things have undoubtedly improved, but they tend to be small-scale process improvements, digitization, electronic governance, the improvement of procurement systems... Closing down loopholes for bad behaviour, so there are lots of small examples where donors can make a difference, but they don't seem to add up to a big change in the accountability and the integrity of overall performance. So quite what is missing, I don't know. Whether it's something about the systems not being right, there might be something in it. But ultimately it comes back to what I said at the beginning. The incentives to perform, to be held accountable, either for governments writ large or individual public servants aren't there. There are few consequences of doing the wrong thing and probably not very many consequences rewards for doing the right thing. I think elites in the Pacific are like, like elites in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. They like the parts of governance programs that deliver on their own interests and deliver to their supporters. They ignore the stuff that they don't like. But of course it's impossible to generalise. The needs of a governance programme in Fiji are completely different to the needs of a governance programme in PNG in the Solomons. Where skills, where technical skills, on for example accounting, public financial management, auditing, procurement, where they are scarce. There's no doubt that Pacific Governments are very keen to put in place governance programmes. Where it gets a bit sort of contentious is where those programmes might get a little bit Close to decision-making and prevent the elites benefiting from rent-seeking or whatever that sort of drives their own personal agendas.
3: So, uh, generally speaking, when you talk to Chinese officials that might be termed Chinese aid officials, they're pretty mystified by the governance agenda.
0: Graham Smith is from ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. He's one of Australia's leading watchers of China in the Pacific.
3: This is not something that is delivered as part of the Chinese aid program, which is still very project driven. So they come in, they deliver things, usually visible things such as roads, bridges, things that they can open and put a plaque on. Governance completely mystifies them. They do not understand it. And the one moment that really encapsulated this for me was when I met with the economic counselor for Papua New Guinea. So China has two heads in any country; they have the head of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who's the ambassador, but they have a guy who's actually more important, called the economic counselor, who represents the Ministry of Commerce, which is a higher-ranked ministry. And he was a very old-school guy. So this is almost a decade ago now. And back that long ago, the Pacific was still seen as kind of a punishment post within the the Chinese Foreign Service. It Was somewhere you went when you made a mistake. And he was a pretty grumpy guy as a result. But the one time he livened up in the interview is when he was faced with the question of, you know, what's China's intent here? Lots of Australians are a bit concerned about it. And he just kind of laughed and he said, Look, we really have no ambitions whatsoever for Papua New Guinea. And one of the things that I found the most mystifying when I arrived in this country is I would have a meeting with Treasury and there'd be an Australian sitting opposite me at the table. And I'd just be looking at him going, You know, are you in the wrong room? What are you you doing here? And then I learned that these guys are working in treasury. And he was totally mystified. And he thought, oh, okay, well, remember, there's a one-off. And then he said, no, I went down the, you know, (laughs) across the road to the next ministry, and there was another Australian. And literally every ministry he was being confronted at every turn by Australians. And he said, look, trust me, we're never going to do that. (laughs) We have no interest in doing that. And as far as he was concerned, he wasn't saying, look, you're welcome to this country if you're that invested in it. But it was more or less our scale of ambition for this country is, yes, we, we want the resources, but we certainly don't want to change the country.
0: Often the language of governance can be so jargony that it can be hard to remember that these are programs that take place in real places and with real governments that are comprised of real people. So as a corrective, let's get a sense as to the realities of some of the places in which these programs take place, through the unique eyes of some of our project collaborators who we asked to go out and describe the government areas. We'll start with Paula Torres in Dili, who's outside the cavernous government palace. <laughs>
1: Standing outside from the gate of Government Palace, Dili, the building was the Portuguese colonial era, and now official workplace of Prime Minister and constitutional government of Timor-Leste. There are two separate big buildings, I'm curious to find out whose office were. Probably has around two hundred government and stakeholder official cars in the car park. There is beautiful ocean and garden. Lots of wild beetle nuts, trees, are plants strong as well. This building is an important building, so the security doesn't allow me to go inside unless I do an appointment at the beginning.
0: Most of the governance programs in Dili are not actually located at the palace, but are managed out of a rather surreal business park outside of Dili, a 20-minute motorbike ride through the dust of Timor-Leste's capital city.
1: Hi, I'm outside the Pan Business Park. This is the main building of many of the program of office that based in Delhi. I like to come in the morning to feel the fresh air, and I see everyone are getting ready for the work. Most of the people in the park are from Timor-Leste, but there are lots of Indonesian 60 to 70 cars in the car park and Indonesian motorbikes as well. When I'm looking around, there are a lot of national and international programs based in one building. I see sign of partnership for human development, market development facility, European Union embassy, Australia Development Partnership, GIJ, German Agency for International Cooperation, and World Bank.
0: And here's Godfrey describing Waigani the chief administrative area in Port Moresby, which is modelled, in some respects, on Australia's capital, Canberra.
4: The suburb of Waigani houses everything that a growing nation might need to advance itself, such as a gated city hall that's just as confusing to drive out of as it is to drive into, several luxury hotels that all look like they were built by architects from different centuries of Western history, and a whole swath of buildings of various shapes and sizes. From the Sir Manasupe House, or as it's more colloquially known due to its shape and color, the Pineapple Building, the National Library which shares a lot more in common with the dilapidated state of Port Moresby General Hospital than it does its neighbor, the pristine courthouse that never seems to let an ounce of trash enter any of its various car parks, to the West New Britain House, which seems to be the only building in recent memory designed with traditional decals in mind. Almost like your typical standard government building was going through a rebellious phase and decided to go out and get a tattoo sleeve down half of its body, only without looking particularly bad. All of these installations are always quite noticeably high up off the hustle and bustle of the street vendors, rushing to cars who've stopped at a red light to show their goods while impatient drivers try not to make eye contact, lest they pique the interest of a hungry hustler, only trying to make money move in much of the same way that these giants of stone, glass, and metal above them do.
0: And to try to get some lived perspectives on the impacts of all this governance work, we stayed in Waigani, where we met two people well familiar with governance and public administration programs.
5: My name is Joseph Nobetau. I'm from the autonomous region of Bougainville. I spent almost 30 years uh, in the public service, both in PNG and in the autonomous region of Bougainville. Half that time was with the Department of Foreign Affairs. That's where I started my public service career. Uh, one posting in Germany, the other one in Australia. And immigration, where I joined at the Foreign Affairs, used to be part of Foreign Affairs as a division. And when I joined, we transformed immigration into a state of authority, a self-funding organization. As his own head of the organization, the chief migration officer, and at the moment as his own minister as well. Joseph and I know
0: each other from Bougainville, where he served as chief secretary of the autonomous Bougainville government from 2016. To 2019. He was kind enough to write a blurb from my recent book on Bougainville. But what he wanted to talk about here was the process by which he transformed Papua New Guinea's immigration service. It's not a story you'll read in a press release.
5: PNG immigration was a dumping ground in foreign affairs. Everybody disciplined for mismanagement, for incompetence, were moved to immigration. It was a division that only at processing officers who had no experience in terms of policy development, policy making, in terms of what immigration's core business is. And that advice was provided by advisors from Western immigration. But because immigration was part of foreign affairs, there are officers that came from a mindset that, uh, you know, foreign affairs are guardians of sovereignty and independence and there was always an us and them mentality. And that went on for a while uh, until 2007 when I joined. I think my background in foreign affairs kind of helped a bit, you know, because I was uh, used to working with development partners during my time in foreign affairs. And that's when we transformed the place, you know. Andrew Metcalf was a secretary for immigration during my time here when I was heading uh, PNG Immigration. We spoke, and then I decided the kind of support I needed. And it was not just processing, and it was more finance management, operational support, technical support. Because immigration as it is today reflects the kind of support I received during that time. There were 14 staff, and I had to work with agencies on both sides, PNG and Australia. When I joined Immigration at 1414 one staff, they had a budget of 1.6 million. And their presence was only in Port Mosby. If you compare that today, PNG's immigration is presence in Bukai, in Rabaul, in Mount Hagen, Daru, and Utum, and then in, I think, five for foreign missions. And they have a staff of about 400, and their budget is 60 million. They have, uh, own border management system. But this is where sometimes when you talk about the ugly, at some point they replicated a the border management system that was applicable to Samoa, And they thought they could apply the same in PNG. Samoa does not have a land border, smaller population, maybe only a few visa categories compared to PNG. And I think this is where advisors learn that we need to engage with a recipient agency and, and listen to people.
0: For Joseph, As with so many people we've met during the series, it comes down to individual relationships and also something intrinsic to the individual self, a willingness to learn and to be open to new ideas and ways of doing things.
5: There are advisors who are very effective in the organizations. And uh, the aid programs are good and they are well-intentioned. But as I said, it's a two-way process. If the counterpart can provide leadership, that will trickle down to the rest of the management team. And I think most of the advisors who come in try their very best to try and break down barriers and to build trust and build good working relationships. And it has worked for us in immigration, in ABG. Not 100%, because I'm talking about the leadership I provided, but where departments, where the heads don't want to change, of course, becomes problematic. But I think rather than talking or thinking of creating a revolution in institutions, we should look at that incremental approach.
0: how are you i'm good um we've had a bit of a situation ruth is a former obama scholar community activist and one of the many reasons i like her is that she's incapable of not giving a straight answer to a straight question i began by asking her whether all the impact of this confetti of initiatives was still felt on the ground for ruth all this governance and public administration work could not really be meaningful if the outside states promoting the reforms did not have a partner to work with in Port Moresby.
6: The thing is that the ownership, unless the Papua, New and the Papua New Guinea government identifies the problem and then looks for solution, any partners that want to work with us to point out a problem and to come up with a solution will never work because there's no ownership on our part. And of course we've been, you know, I'm sitting in in trainings because I'm told that, oh, you have a problem here and let's work towards getting that problem resolved. But we have few ideas on how to solve that problem. Now, of course I'm willing to listen to ideas that be given to me, but unless I'm also in agreement that there's a problem and I'm also in agreement that these are the solutions to that problem, unless I am, we will not be able to get there because like you said, at the end of the day, the ownership has to be mine. I've got to be the one to say my government has to be the one to say that our problem is actually governance. Our problem is actually democracy. Our problem is development. Our problem is this and this and this. They've got to be the ones to point out the problem. They've got to be the ones to identify what the solution needs to be and the gaps need to be filled in by our very good partners that are coming in. And because there's no ownership on our part, you know, our partners are trying to say, work with us. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. Of course they should, but it'll be a waste of so much taxpayer money. And that's what we've seen over the years, because the gap I'm seeing is that the ownership and the owners that needs to be owned by my government is not there. And it'll always be that push that thing where the battery is flattened, you know, the vehicle is working, but then the battery goes off. So you've got to start it up again, and that's what I'm seeing. So it's going, and then you know, everyone's so happy the vehicle's moving, of course, and then, of course, the battery dies. And then we've got to wait again for, you know, it's, it's a vicious cycle.
0: And Ruth is very alive to the intense geopolitics of this moment and Papua New Guinea's place in that.
6: That's the thing, whether it's in, say, security and defense, We're looking at our borders now. We share borders with Australia. Uh, We are a very strategic country in the Pacific. You know, uh, regionally, we are very strategic. We're hearing of partners that are coming in because again, are you coming in to work with us to protect your sovereignty? Or are you coming in to work with us and protect our sovereignty because you see us as a very crucial partner in the region? Whose interest are you pushing when you're coming in to say that, oh, we need to build our naval base here because, you know, it's a strategic corridor. So is it strategic to you or is it strategic to us? If you want to build your asylum on our island to process your refugee, does it serve you or does it serve me? And those are the things, you know, you want to help build us up as an important state so that we'll be strengthened, but then is it something that serves both our interest? Or when I look at it, the scales are actually in your favor than in mine. Even even when it comes to, you know, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's, you know, about economic benefits, whatever it is, um, it's gotta be something that if you're working with our country, with our government, then it's gotta be both ways or maybe more so us because we're the one actually on the lower end of the development pool. So maybe it should benefit us more than you. But when you see the old picture, sometimes it actually privileges the donor countries more than it does us.
0: Do you have an example that comes to mind of where the balance is kind of in the wrong between Papua New Guinea and another state that wants to work with Papua New Guinea?
6: I mean, yeah, I, like I said, the Manus deal.
0: My fellow Australians, from this point forward, asylum seekers who arrive in Australia by boat will be sent to Papua New Guinea for processing and resettlement.
6: I mean, we got not only where we settled with, you know, people that came from countries that wanted to go into Australia, it also put a lot of strain on our government as well. And of course, you know, we were given compensation and when I say compensation, I mean compensation. OK, we'll do up your hospital. We'll do this for you and do that for you. But you gotta allow these people on your island so that we process them. And if we don't want the ones that we don't want, you'll have to actually get them and resettle them in your country. Did we ask for that? Do we have the infrastructure to be able to cater for that? And of course, I know that there was money given, but the fact is we're dealing with a situation that we already have a system that is barely working, whether it's in health, it's in education, whether it's in employment, whatever it is, economic. We have a system that is barely working. And then we have an agreement like this that from start to finish, it favors the opposing government more than it does us. How can you now start to build trust again when you have an agreement like that that goes wrong? And we're able now to see that oh no, you know, we got the short end of the stick. And now we've been proposed again, oh, we need to fix your governance system because this is what it is. So we're putting this and this much money in. How can you keep on at something when you're teaching us that, look, we're not genuine. You're not being genuine, and then you keep expecting us to go into all these different trainings after trainings and policies that would benefit us. It puts at the back of our mind that, you know, maybe this is for them more than for us.
0: So let me ask you a question about these trainings and these policies and these plans, because, you know, every time I come to Papua New Guinea, I turn on the television or I open the newspaper And every day it has someone announcing a new plan. Like, you know, the minister is very happy with this five-year plan or this 15-year plan. I think Papua New Guinea has, what, Vision 2050? Let me ask you a direct question. Does anyone read these plans?
6: No. Maybe some people do. Maybe some do. After time, I'm not even able to understand in my layman's term, the development jargons that are put into it to make the book so thick. Sorry, I'm not reading those. The ones that are supposed to be implementing those policies, no, they're not reading it. But the ones that are funding it, they're reading it. Because they want to make sure that word for word, it privileges their institution. Word for word, it's what they're asking the policy to be. to be. But when it comes down to the ones that are supposed to adopt it and implement it, it hardly scratches the surface. After that time, there's certain criteria that is put into those policy. Can't even meet. There's certain English standards, and not to say that you know we don't understand English. So there's some brilliant people from the deep south that are able to understand. But it's like I said, when it comes to the all part about implementing this, translating it contextualizing it, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't gel. So while it's we say that it's important that people write this policy, it's also equally important that people that you write those policy for are able to be part of it or are able to understand it, or they are able to influence how that policy is written. Most times it feels like there's another player we don't see that the policy is written for, that it has to tick some certain boxes. So we are like the secondary reader of that policy, but there's a primary one that it's written for.
0: And for Ruth, this is all a question of who is located where within the structure of power.
6: There's some very brilliant, brilliant Papua New Guineans that are working, I mean, much, much smarter than me who are working with either the the US embassy or, or with the US government or with Australian government. And I can see that they know what can be done, what the problem is, what the solutions can be. But whether or not their opinion counts is another thing. And whether or not they want to risk their job security, again, is another thing. Papua New Guinea is a very tough place to live. You don't have a job. You don't have a job. And if you're working for the Australian government, that's like the top tier. So for you to approach yourself and put your job in line, especially when you don't have a system that is going to take care of you when you do want to call it out. It's all those people that are working in there that really need to think about their own job security as well. But you mentioned um, Minister Penny Wong. Let me tell you, that woman is amazing completely, utterly amazing. She came in fresh straight after visiting the Pacific, the Papua New Guinea. And the first thing she asked us when she came over for a meeting, there were a few of us that were asked to meet with her. First thing she asked us was, if you were me, what would you do? And for me, that question is the one that needs to be asked by every partners that comes in. Every policy is now has to be rewritten. So they have that question
0: right at the top. What did you say to her? What did you tell Penny Wong?
6: One of the first things I did was take a risk. We can't keep protecting our institutional privileges because the more you do that, you're going to do the same thing over and over and not get the results you want. The law and justice sector in Papua New Guinea has been funded by the Australian government. What is the data to prove these are the tangible things that we've done? okay, fine, Family Sexual Violence Unit, all these trainings that we've given to police, attaching the police from Australia here. But what has changed? What we want to know is, okay, so what has changed after all these different policies that we've put in place, all the different programs that we've done, all the different fundings that have gone in, what has changed? If nothing has changed, then that means that we've been doing it all wrong. And the thing about her that I found so refreshing was that she wanted something done to write those.
0: The conversation with Ruth triggered a memory of a beachfront banquet in Dilly held one sultry, windless night many years ago at a time when a Nokia phone was still a status symbol. The dinner was held in honour of a visiting Australian minister there on a flying visit. The minister looked bored by the stilted chatter. And when it was suggested that everyone switch seats after dinner to enliven the deadening atmosphere, I was just heading off to the bathroom. And I returned to find the minister sitting alone. Having nowhere else to go, I plonked myself down next to him. And we had a great chat. We spoke about this and that, about our shared love of cricket, our shared Irish heritage, the liminal delights of high-status airline lounges. And then he turned to me and he said... Can you tell me if this project is working well? I just don't believe all these long reports I'm being given. They read like boring fairy stories. And thereupon, the minister's staffers decided it was high time the meeting concluded. This and Ruth's observations confirmed for me two things. The first is that ministers aren't stupid and are slightly disbelieving of what they are being told. And the second is that the challenge for ministers is to try and get the bureaucracies under them to do things differently, and also report fully the challenges bound up in programs talked about in this episode, focusing on administration and governance. As Joseph's story reminds us too, there is good work and achievements happening as well, often away from the headlines and taking place in nondescript offices in places like Waigani. Despite the initial copy and paste clangers of the immigration program, the end result is a pretty positive one. Australia helped Papua New Guinea set up its own border security system, a pretty important part of the security architecture in the game of statecraft. Like most of the stories told here, Joseph's wasn't a boring fairy story. Sure, the arch-technical language of governance programs is easy to pillory, and my parents, in-laws, and indeed most sentient adults are still going to be perplexed at my job titles. But perhaps these programs are generating more pockets of achievement and pockets of influence than we might think. In the next and final episode of State Craftiness, we travel to Vanuatu to examine how defence training is responding to the new geostrategic climate. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark-Peter Nataris and Shanna Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Canute is the sound engineer and producer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.